Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masterson. Today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the beginning of a ground invasion of Gaza by Israeli forces and the human cost in Palestinian lives as television screens around the world show heartbreaking images of wounded and traumatized children. Joining us to discuss who is winning the military campaign but losing the information war is Lara Friedman, the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she was the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now, and before that she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements, and Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress. Then, following the 565th mass shooting this year, we'll examine the glaring inadequacy of the red and yellow flag laws meant to confiscate firearms from mentally ill people who pose a danger to themselves and others. We'll speak with Jonathan Metzel, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and Director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. A prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness, he's the author of several books including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, and his forthcoming book is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Then finally we'll get a profile of the new House Speaker from an expert on the religious right who first noticed the ascending Christian fundamentalist politician Mike Johnson in 2015. Joining us is Frederick Clarkson, a senior fellow at Political Research Associates and analysis and an analyst of the religious right for over 30 years. He's the co-founder of the important group blog about the Christian right, Talk to Action. His books include Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. And he has a series of essays on the new apostolic reformation, the cutting edge of the Christian right, at the online magazine Religion Dispatches. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, and armed and angry followers are paralyzing our legislative branch and threatening to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judicial branch. We are in a fight between crazy America and normal America, which we have to win. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Lara Friedman, who's the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she was the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now. And before that, she was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis, and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements, and Jerusalem, and the role of the U.S. Congress. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lara Friedman. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks as though the ground invasion of Gaza is now underway. I'd like to discuss with you uh, who is winning the military campaign but losing the information war, if indeed you agree with me that pictures of 
traumatized and wounded young Gazan children are on the television screens around the world. So, I mean, I, I think it's too early to say even, I mean, on the question of who's winning the military campaign with the ground campaign, we just don't have all that much information from the ground. What we do know is that Israel's air campaign that preceded this and now the ground campaign are wreaking havoc for Palestinian civilians. Um, and as you say, there we've had now three weeks of, of pictures and news coming out of, of Gaza, which is, is just horrific. And I, I just, I, I should be clear, this isn't in any way to ignore what Hamas did on October 7th. But if the idea is that the legitimate answer to a terrorist organization targeting civilians is for a government to massively target civilians, um, we, there, there's a problem. And I think that is something that the world is seeing. In terms of the information war, though, I think it, it, it is an open question, really, where this is going. If you look at the, the demonstrations that have taken place this past weekend around the world, clearly at a, at a grassroots level, the, the popular sentiments um, is, is very much, um, it, it's surging concern for Palestinian civilians, um, outrage at what Israel is doing. This is not anti-Semitic, largely. I'm sure there are people out there who are anti-Semitic. It is not. These, these, these demonstrations, from what I have seen, are very clearly focused on the, the actions of the Israeli government against Palestinian civilians. This is not pro-Hamas. This is pro-humanity. Um, but on the other side, you have really a really active information war pushing back and labeling all of this anti-Semitic, pro-Hamas, pro-terrorist, um, within the Israeli, Israeli body politic, if you if you watch just Israeli news, particularly Hebrew language news, you don't even know this is happening, right? There's there's very little news um, about what is being done to Palestinian civilians, and if you look at the polling inside Israel, there's very little concern about what's happening to Palestinian civilians. So I, I guess there's there's different ways to say who's who's winning um, the the public narrative war. Um, the real question is if if it if at some point a, a shift in public narrative will be sufficient to uh, compel the powers, the United States, Europe, international community that have some ability to pressure Israel to restrain itself or maybe get a ceasefire, um, whether we'll get to that. And, and we clearly haven't reached that point yet. Well, the Israelis are determined to wipe out Hamas, aren't they? And now they're uh, issuing an evacuation order for the Al-Quds Hospital, which they believe, and they're probably right, that Hamas is using it as a, a cover for either some kind of headquarters or whatever. There are 1,400 people just sheltering there next to the hospital, along with, I think, 400 at least people inside the hospital. The doctors are saying you, we can't evacuate everybody, so... That looks as if it's a pending PR disaster along with a humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, so far it appears that Israel isn't particularly worried about PR disasters, um, either because, you know, we have fog of war and things can be spun and you can cast doubt on number of civilians, you can cast doubt on whose missile fell, you can cut off all telecommunications for days and then no one really knows. It's a he said, she said, and, and the Israeli perspective is, well, we say these are all terrorists and we celebrate that what we are doing is, you know, it's the battle of light against dark. Um, you know, the, the speech that Netanyahu made yesterday, um, I, I say for, for those of us who have looked at the Israeli response since October 7th, and, and I say this as an analyst, 
I've heard people say, well, this is about, this is just an emotional response, or this is just retribution. And I think those are both true in terms of how people in Israel see it and are supportive of it. But if you look at the the tactics um, that Israel has adopted since October 7th, starting with the order to move um, more than a million people out of the northern part of the Gaza Strip and force them into the south, and then continuing to bomb the south, um, it, it's it's really been difficult to avoid a conclusion that this is not about a deliberate and very conscious strategy of clearing out at least half of Gaza, if not all of Gaza, and pushing either pushing what's left, what remain, what survive of Palestinians into effectively refugee camps in the southern part of the Gaza Strip or across the border. And in the past few days, we've seen, I mean, we saw weeks ago, um, a Hebrew language report. It was a, it was a, a study that came out of a, a right-wing Israeli think tank laying out exactly the strategy, calling October 7th, October 7th an opportunity for Israel to do this. We now have a leaked uh, Ministry of Intelligence report, which literally lays out exactly what I've just said as the strategy of the Israeli government. I mean, that's one, one ministry. You can say it doesn't matter, but it, it clearly mirrors exactly what's happening on the ground. And then yesterday we have a speech from, from Benjamin Netanyahu, which basically says we are. this is the second war of independence, which suggests the second Nakba. I mean, that's what is Palestinians call the war of independence and explicitly cites of it cites a verse from 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 the Talmud, which is basically giving license for genocide. Um, so, I, I mean, talking about sort of like, you know, what intense is and what's happening. I mean, it doesn't seem like Israel is particularly worried about how the press sees this. They have it seems like there is a clear strategy behind this and they're going forward with it. And at the end of the day, they're, they, this, the, the world will I think the idea is the world will accept what we do. And then it'll be over, and it'll be the world's problem how to deal with whatever Palestinians remain. In other words, what to do with half of Gaza? The Israelis will occupy the northern half, which will be just rubble, and then what? Turn it over to the UN and whichever Arab country could reconstruct it, like Qatar or Saudi. Is that the plan? I mean, I, I would encourage people to look, and this is this is online, and people have translated whole chunks of the Ministry of Intelligence report. I, I my personal analysis is this is more than just trying to get people into the southern part of Gaza. I think the noises we heard at the beginning of this war about humanitarian corridors and relocating people into the Sinai, I think that is the goal. I think the goal of this war vis-a-vis, just vis-a-vis Gaza, and we should also talk about the West Bank, by the way, the goal of this war vis-a-vis Gaza is to fundamentally destroy the paradigm that has existed since the 1967 war of a Palestinian territory with millions of people in it. And these are millions of people, most of whom are refugees from inside 1948, right? These are people who lost their homes once already and are always going to be seen by Israel as a danger because of the recidivist desire for a right of return to their homes. It is to once and for all shatter that paradigm by effectively erasing Palestinian Gaza. 
And whether that means by occupying half of it or a third of it or, or annexing all of it and pushing all the Palestinians out, which I think is, you know, if you have the fantasy goal, I think that is the fantasy goal. And saying, listen, at this point, there's no place for them to go back to. They are destitute. The people who are left, are, are their morale is broken. They're, they're, they're orphans. They're injured. They're sick. They're destitute. And they are now the international community's problem, and they're a humanitarian problem, and they're outside of our borders. I think that's really what we're talking about here. The question is how much they can do and how quickly they can do it. They're clearly, if you look at what's happening on the ground, the policy on the ground is scorched earth, plow the ground, sow it with salt to make sure there's nothing to come back to. And already, of course, you have looting going on in in the, the south of Gaza. So there'll be chaos on top of all of what you've just said. But I can't see Egypt accepting they made it really clear they don't want uh, to have a bunch of uh, refugees dumped on them in the Sinai. And wouldn't that destabilize the Egyptian street? I mean, isn't that what both King Abdullah and, and Sisi are worried about, their, their own local reaction? Look, I mean, e Egypt has made clear for years. I, I can go back to more than a decade ago. I remember talking to Egyptian diplomats when there was – you know, there's always these proposals of how Israel can solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict without having to give up the West Bank. And they have the one-state solution, the three-state solution, the 16-state solution. And this is one of those solutions where, you know, the Gaza Strip becomes part of Egypt and it's no longer Israel's problem. And I remember a very senior Egyptian official saying at a meeting, he said, if Israel tries to shove Gaza off on us, that, that cost of that will be the, the, the Camp David peace treaty. There's no world in which Egypt will ever accept that. And there's a whole, there's myriad reasons why this is complicated for Egypt, starting with, let's remember, I mean, Israel wants to get rid of Gaza partly because of Hamas. Hamas is ideologically affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a Palestinian nationalist arm of the Muslim Brotherhood or, or, or a brother of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, that is, you know, the Muslim, Muslim, the current government in Egypt came to power by a, with a coup against the Muslim Brotherhood government. There's, there's no way that they will... And I shouldn't say no way. I mean, anything is possible if you bribe them and twist arms enough, perhaps. We'll see. Time will tell. There's no way they want to bring in a population that they see as potentially dangerous to their own security that way. It is economically very difficult to imagine how they take them on, even if they're bribed. It is politically divisive that bring in a population that is essentially, you know, being brought in against their will, and they're the ally of Israel. And let's remember the last piece of it, which is, Egypt, I don't think, has any desire to become responsible for making sure that there is not a security risk to Israel from that border. And if all these Palestinians, I mean, this is, it, it, it is untenable for Egypt. As far as, I mean, the Jordan piece of it, we've already seen with Jordan, Lebanon. I mean, we have a lot of countries that are already fragile and have fragile demographics and fragile political demographics. Bringing in large populations of refugees that are not part of this body politic that will change the demographic balances politically, religiously. It's already been something that has um, th that has challenged the political systems in countries where there are a lot of Palestinian refugees. Lebanon's managed it to the extent that they have by basically keeping Palestinians in cages in Lebanon, right, in the refugee camps. If you want to talk to Lebanese in the political system and, you know, you want to you want to say something really um, divisive in politics, you use the word tautin, which means nationalizing the idea of giving Palestinians national rights, which is seen as a trick basically for the Sunnis to take over the country because Palestinians are largely Sunni. 
obviously in Jordan, it's a huge challenge inside the body politic. So, yeah, the idea that Israel will solve this conflict for themselves or change the paradigm for, you know, by once and for all ridding themselves of the Palestinians um, and they're going to do it on the backs of their neighbors is is potentially very destabilizing and something that their neighbors, I can't imagine, will ever voluntarily accept. So, Lara, in the last few minutes remaining here, let's talk about the West Bank already. Itamar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister, the, who's the champion of the settlers, he's been handing out arms to the settlers. Now they're starting to shoot Palestinians wantonly. Ironically, of course, the reason that the Gaza border was so, there were so few Israeli soldiers on that border was that Ben-Gvir and Netanyahu had moved them into the West Bank to protect the settlers who were running roughshod over the Palestinians. So do you see the, the West Bank as also exploding? Yes. I mean, the West Bank's already exploding. And it's. I think it's worth reminding people, you know, people are talking about, you know, October 7th. I mean, the, the story did not begin on October 7th. And before October 7th, the settlers were marauding in the West Bank. We had the pogrom in Hawara. We had, we had, I mean, just before this, I mean, a few days before October 7th, you had settlers take over downtown Hawara so they could hold a, a, a religious celebration in the middle of downtown, after which they committed vandalism in the streets and a young Palestinian man was shot on the roof of his house. Um, so, I mean, since this government came into power, the current Israeli government, the settlers are ha, have been clearly unleashed in a way that goes beyond what we've had ever before. And ever before, things were already pretty bad. Um, in, in terms of where things are going now, I, I am a fan of the, you know, believe people when they tell you what they're going to do. Um, the settlers have been clear for years that the goal is to annex the West Bank, and there have been plans put forward by people who are currently in government, like Smotrich, plans which basically call for removing pretty much all Palestinians unless they will, you know, sign on to be essentially a population with limited rights and loyal to the state of Israel. I mean, they're very clear that that's the intent. The, you know, understanding what's going on, and I, I actually, I, I tweeted this the other day, Years ago, my colleague Danny Seidemann in Jerusalem, who's one of the wisest people I know, and we were, we were talking about the settlers in Jerusalem, what they're doing, and he said something along the lines of, you have to understand that for them, this isn't about you know a specific settlement or a specific piece of land. This is about completing the 1948 war. They feel the 48 war was not finished. Finishing the 48 war means a Jewish state from the river to the sea without Arabs, and that's what they are trying to complete. <laughs> um, and again, that's not a direct quote. That's my memory of the conversation. But with that framing in mind, looking at what's happening in Gaza and in parallel, what we're seeing with what is the outright ethnic cleansing of Palestinian communities in the West Bank, we have today, as you and I are speaking, Palestinian communities packing up and leaving their homes and their lands because settlers are coming and saying, you have 24 hours to leave or we're going to kill you. Right. And they believe them because they're killing people. And there's no one to protect them. There's no one to stop them from pushing Palestinians out. And if you look, I mean, this is getting very, I don't think this is getting any coverage in the U.S. press. There was a leaflet that was placed on cars across the West Bank a couple of days ago in, in Arabic from the settlers, basically telling people, you know, get out now, flee to Jordan before we forcibly expel you. The Nakba is upon you. Believe them. They're telling you what they're going to do. 
And if you listen to Bibi Netanyahu's speech yesterday, when he talks about a second war of independence and, you know, citing a biblical verse that basically is an opening for genocide, he talks about the soldiers, the Israeli soldiers who are the standard bearers of this in Gaza. And then he talks about and in the other areas of the land of Israel, which as I hear that, I hear him talking about the West Bank. And I hear him also talking about inside what is sovereign Israel, where yesterday you had basically an attempted lynching in a major Israeli city where hundreds of people came out and surrounded a college dorm, which had Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel inside, you know, chanting, kill the Arabs, death to Arabs. You know, this is this is where this is whether or not this actually moves. Anybody stops it, whether it's inside Israel elsewhere remains to be seen. But I would encourage people to listen to what the Israeli officials are telling you. They said weeks ago, weeks ago, Israeli officials said at the end of this, there are going to be no buildings in Gaza, only tents. Right. Mm. Listen to what they're saying to you and believe them. Well, Lara Friedman, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Lara Friedman, who's the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Previously, she was the director of policy and government relations at Americans for Peace Now. And before that was a U.S. Foreign Service officer serving in Jerusalem, Washington, Tunis and Beirut. Lara is a leading authority on U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Arab-Israeli conflict, settlements and Jerusalem and the role of the U.S. Congress. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the glaring inadequacy of the red and yellow flag laws meant to confiscate firearms from mentally ill people who pose a danger to themselves and others. I've been waiting for something to happen For a week or a month or a year With the blood and the ink of the headline And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes to remember when you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war There's a shadow on the faces of the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Metzel, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society, a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. He's the author of several books, including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And his forthcoming book is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Metzel. Hi, Ian. So, Jonathan, just hours before a army reservist with a history of mental illness uh, went on a shooting rampage that killed 18 people and wounded 13 in Maine, the United States Senate voted 53 to 45 to adopt an amendment making it easier for veterans with mental disabilities to get guns. And this was put forth by Senator John Kennedy, Republican of Louisiana, and another Louisiana politician, Mike Johnson, of course, was voted in as the new speaker. And he was on Fox News saying, talking about the mass shooting in Maine, saying that the problem is the human heart. It's not guns. It's not the weapons. And then he went on to say that since a person could use a car to mow down people, it makes no sense to further regulate guns. 
So that is the political situation we have here in the United States in, in spite of the fact that there have been 565 mass shootings this year alone, which is a, roughly two a day. And there's certainly not 565 cars running people down. So is there any hope for a political solution to this insanity? Well, you know, you, you mentioned I have this new book coming out, What, what We've Become. And really the argument of the book is exactly what you're just saying, which is that we have these horrible mass shootings and then we enact policies afterwards. In other words, if a healthy nation, in my opinion, would say, look, pretty much the same damn thing happens every single time. Like how many of this exact, I mean, the stories are the, are different. The Obviously the victims, the communities um, are, are different, but um, somebody, a, a troubled person who came to you with a family was concerned, but he was from a second amendment family and somebody who had had a history of violence before. And there were multiple red flags, uh, but nothing stopped him. It's, it's, it's the same story we heard at the covenant school shooting uh, in Nashville at the waffle house mass shooting, which is the, sh- the, st- the shooting I wrote my book about. And it feels like hundreds of other shootings, which is these are shooters who um, even despite all of these red flags, bought their guns legally, which was also the, apparently the case in, in Maine as well. And so you would think we would learn from these. I mean, I would just think in a, in a pluralistic democracy, a healthy functioning democracy, we could say we have this Second Amendment, but let's learn from these cases and and do and you know let let's let, at least learn from the repetitive nature of these cases and instead what we see is exactly what you're just describing which is that we 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 face the abyss at these moments of our people dying our communities being ruptured and then we enact policies that as i argue in my new book practically assure that this is going to happen again and so in a way every one of these shootings it's just flashing in neon, you know, here are the 15, 20 things we could do as a country to support our Second Amendment if people feel that they need to have a gun, but that, you know, there are just such clear-cut ways to disrupt um, to disrupt this, and, and we don't do it. We, In fact, in, as I show in my new book, we do the opposite. And so what I ask in my new book is, what does that say about us? And I, I mean us everybody, right? Because we're all stuck in this, right? I know a lot of people, including myself and you and many people don't support what's happening, but this is the country we're living in where we have a mass shooting and the policies that surround the mass shooting. Um, I mean, there's the Supreme Court next week is going to hear a case about whether people convicted of um, domestic assault have a right to have a, a weapon or, or whether that should be regulated. And so it just it just becomes ridiculous because we have these shootings and we're forced to live this world where instead of learning how to keep people safe, we pass policies that are going to make sure this happens again. But the problem is not the human heart, Jonathan. The problem is we have minority rule in this country. If you were able to have majority rule in the House and Senate and the, and the White House, uh, well, the, with the White House going along with it, this problem would be solved along with so many other problems. Well, you know, I, I think I'm curious to see, you know, obviously many people are working on this. Many, many, many people are working on this. My new book argues, that, and I, I think it'll be probably controversial, that we're that we're beyond 
the kinds of regulation that we're proposing now. And so I wish I could fix it if I was in the White House. But I can also say that even if we passed background checks and red flag laws and assault weapons bans tomorrow for the whole country, in so many ways, we would still have the same problem. First of all, because we already have about 440 million guns in circulation, um, well more than one gun per person already in circulation. Um, and, and the things we're talking about, you know, background checks and assault weapons bans, those are only for gun purchases. So there are already so many guns that we're already living in a kind of militarized society. And and that's part of it. But the other part is the problem isn't just about gun policy. I mean, that's what I'm trying to argue in, in this new book. The problem is about polarization, about about people who feel like any regulation whatsoever is an assault on their freedom. And how do we how do we navigate that when they are the ones who are mostly the gun owners? And so um, I'm, I'm kind of arguing rhetorically. And I know this is not rhetorical. This is real life what's happening now, but I'm arguing to, to maybe reboot this conversation a little bit because I just think we're we're stuck in so many ways, so many issues, including this one. And so, you know, I, I'll just say, first of all, what happened in Maine is horrible. And it's just the repetitive nature of these kind of stories that have, you know, I, I don't want to say that I sound hopeless, but I just, I'm responding to what you said a minute ago about fixing the problem. And what would it mean to fix the problem? It wouldn't just mean having background checks and red flag laws. It would mean really thinking about what kind of society we live in and what kind of society we want. But Jonathan, there was an example in Australia where there was a mass shooting in Tasmania and a conservative government almost the next day banned assault weapons and mm -hmm. most handguns and, in fact, most weapons, and they had a volunteer hand-in program where thousands and thousands of firearms were handed in. And there's been a massive drop in gun violence since then. Well, absolutely. I, I use the example of Australia quite often. But the, but the lesson of Australia, I mean, again, we have, we as I said before, we have 440 million guns floating around here. Um that would be quite a large gun buyback program. It's not going to happen here, in other words. But I would say that the, for me, the lesson of Australia, as you know, it wasn't easy in Australia. Australia had a history of gun ownership, of frontiersmanship, of um, self-reliance, of people feeling like they were so far away from the nearest police, uh, you know, safety officer that they needed their gun, all these things. And so it wasn't automatically easy and Australia, the weight wasn't automatically easy in New Zealand, and the issue wasn't – it wasn't just about any one policy. What ha what worked in Australia wouldn't work here, but it was that people on all sides decided to come together at the table and say, look, man, enough is enough, which is – you're right. After this mass shooting, uh, a series of shootings in Australia in the 80s and 90s, people – People said, look, we're willing to work across political divides. And so it wasn't just about any one policy. It was about having a functioning political system where people were willing to negotiate and compromise. And unfortunately, that's not what we have here, right? We, don't, we have one side that's not willing to compromise. And so I, 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 it's not like I don't think policies would work. Of course, I think policies would work. I just think that there's a bigger problem of our political system right now, which is is compromise possible? And if it's not, where do we go from there? Well, in terms of just f focusing on the main shooter who was obviously committed suicide, he 
was found, I think, with three handguns, including the one that he used to kill himself with. The weapon that he used to kill 18 people and wound 13, that was found, that was, a, that was a, an AR-15 style assault rifle. That was found in his car, but the other weapons were found with him. The one that he killed the people with, he bought that just before last summer when he underwent a mental health evaluation because he was acting erratically in an army training facility in New York where, ironically, he was a weapons instructor. And so, you know, he was basically put in to a mental health facility for two weeks because he was hearing voices and he'd threatened to shoot up the military base. And then the other guns that he had that were found with him, the handguns, he bought them recently yeah. after all of this history. So what's the, you know, when you say you know, yellow flag and red flag laws don't work, well, that's obvious, but why don't they work? Well, and there's another part of the story, by the way, um, which is his ammunition, right? So he wasn't, he doesn't just have these um, semi-automatic weapons. He had the kind of, he had basically military-style penetrating bullets, Um and, and this is this is somebody who was trained in firearms, who was in the Army Reserve, who tragically knew how to use them. I mean, I just I've I've been so haunted by the thought of these poor people. I mean, just out for a night of bowling, a, a deaf club who that was playing cornhole, like the most innocent, just living your life people, and here comes somebody trained and also carrying this not just this kind of guns but this kind of ammunition it's just it's almost too much to bear it really is and um you know and and yet i think it's important to push ahead and i i hope i hope what you can hear in my voice is not my saying nothing's ever going to work i don't mean to fall into nihilism at this point but i would just say that it's just you know the for me like the answer is not just about any one particular policy about guns, because you mentioned, for example, yellow flag laws, which is what they have on the books in in Maine, which is better than what they had before 2020 when they didn't have yellow flag laws. But but a yellow flag law means that the family is concerned. That's step number one. They contact the police or you know somebody, some authority. That's step number two. They, police come and do a welfare check, some kind of check. That's step number three. Then in a yellow flag law, they then send the person to a medical doctor or psychiatrist who does some kind of another evaluation, which is step number four. And then it goes before a judge. That's step number five. Um, and then there's a temporary, potentially temporary restriction. Now, again, this is better than nothing. And apparently yellow flag laws are being used by this system. But you can just hear from... The, the many steps involved here that the potential to get around this for somebody who's hell-bent on murder is pretty it's it's just there's a lot of steps to do a temporary um, restraining order for somebody and the fact that every state doesn't have its own policies means you you can just go to another state and get a weapon and, and come back um, or there are loopholes for gun shows for online purchases and and, and so I'm not trying to disparage I mean it took a Herculean, incredible effort for people to get these yellow flag laws on the books, but 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 I think until we have like nationally coherent state-to-state policies, there are just so many holes in these policies that people who are intent on murder can get around them too easily. And what's the difference then, Jonathan, between a yellow flag law and a red flag law? 
Well, the yellow flag law, you just bring in the assessment of a doctor also. So the person's assessed by the police, then a doctor, and then a judge. And, you know, again, I, 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 you hear me sighing just because I'm so – we're all so tired. And, you know, I think part of the issue is about the right policy, but, but I think the other issue – I just want to commend, for example – what David Hogg and his group are doing right now, you know, younger generations of activists who are saying this isn't just about health policy, this is actually about winning elections. And so David's group and some other groups are actually trying to say that it's 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 about, I mean, so much of power about gun policy, about resources, about safety come from elected officials who then appoint judges. Judges are very important. The judiciary, as we're about to see next week again with the Supreme Court, and so policies are certainly important, but I just think that uh, that interventions like what, what David's group is doing now and others, and we have a group similarly in Nashville that are saying none of this is going to change if we also don't figure out how to win elections in places where there are very loose gun laws right now. But the right wing in this country and the NRA and their supporters in, in the Congress, there's this fetish that associates guns with liberty and i don't understand what that association is why does having a gun set you free why is it an instrument of freedom instead of an instrument of death well it's important to note that what you just said it seems like i mean and in many ways it's right what you just said describes many gun owners right now. It describes a libertarian philosophy of gun ownership. It describes certainly the GOP, um, the government cannot involve in regulating these things, but it's just, you know, we forget sometimes how new that is. It hasn't always been that way. Um, in the 1980s, 80% 80 of people who own guns did so for hunting. Uh, they did so because they'd been passed down in their families. The idea that you would carry a gun around for protection was even in the 1980s a very foreign notion um, because that's why we have police and that's why we have the military. This idea of every person needs to be packing heat to go to Walmart was not how we felt. And then the Supreme Court um, had a series of decisions and there were a series of moves by the NRA, you know, starting with the Reagan uh, presidency and um, what was called a new interpretation of the Second Amendment that decided that the Second Amendment applied to people in addition to militias. And then this 2008 Heller decision, which opened the floodgates for individuals to carry weapons and then the Bruin decision a couple of years ago. So it's not inevitable. I guess my point, it's not inevitable that we think this way. The reason people feel this way very largely is because of electoral politics and because of judicial decisions that have come down from the Supreme Court. And I just think we're, this isn't going to change until the, those things start changing in a way. I mean, I just I just think sometimes, like, when's the last time a gun – well, I guess we just had one, right? But it, we, we really need a gun safety majority on the Supreme Court to reverse some of this crazy stuff. Yeah, but the preamble to the Second Amendment says that security being necessary for a free state, the state shall have a well-regulated militia, and then the citizen's right to bear arms shall not be infringed. But the idea that we don't have security and we aren't free – we're not free to go to the movies. We're not free to go to the mall. We're not free to go to churches. 
kids aren't free to go to school without being massacred. So again, this fetish about freedom and guns, and if you take away the guns from a mentally ill person, it's not the end of the world. It's not taking their life, for God's sake, you know. But same mentally ill person in Maine was able to take the life of 18 people. I mean, I I hate this so much, and I obviously I study this, so I see it a lot, and and it, where I live, it happens a lot, and and so I want this to change as much as anyone. Um, I hate that we live like this. It's it's unconscionable that we live like this, but I can also tell you as a psychiatrist, and this is a lot of my work, as you know, um, you could probably have. 10,000 people with mental illness who met the exact same profile as this shooter. And you have no idea which one or 0.4 or whatever are going to go on to shoot somebody. So there's nothing predictive about mental illness. Most people with mental illness are victims of violence, not perpetrators of violence. There are other factors that are more predictive of violence than mental illness, past history of violence, substance abuse, living in a state with loose gun laws, um, I, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, certainly mental illness is a, is a factor in many of these mass shootings. But I just think, um, you know, it's we're never going to be in a place but that, 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 you know, psychiatrists are able to predict which of the thousands of people they see are, are, are the ones that are going to go on to commit violent acts. And, and most shootings on an aggregate level are people without mental illness. And so I'm not trying to deny that this clearly in Maine, this person was very not well. There's no doubt about it. Um, but but I think if you regulated guns from every person with mental illness in this country, that would be a lot of regulation. And, and still, we again, we have about 48,000 gun deaths a year. The great majority don't have anything to do with mental illness. They're about partner violence and suicide and accidental shooting and, and things like that. And so I'm not trying to deny that. I mean, I certainly mm-hmm. think it's an important point, but I would just say, you know, the, the stories we tell, the stories you just told are very often more powerful in retrospect than they are uh, predictively. Sure. But just in closing, we had so far we've had 565 mass shootings this year, which is roughly two a day. In 2022, last year, we had 645 mass shootings, and in 2021, we had 690 mass shootings. Well, let me just say that I remember in 2018, I did a lot of media because we were nearing one mass shooting a day. It was 0.95 in 2018, and everybody was like, how can we live like this? This is unbearable. That was 2018, and now we've doubled that, and so... It's it's not like we have more mentally ill people. We have worse gun laws. And so it's really, really need to do the opposite of what we're doing. Well, Jonathan Metzl, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Metzl, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society, a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. He's the author of several books, including Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And his forthcoming book is What We've Become, Living and Dying in a Country of Arms. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with the profile of the new House Speaker from an expert on the religious right who first noticed the ascending Christian fundamentalist politician Mike Johnson in 2015. If you walk away, I'll walk away. First tell me which road you will take. 
Don't want to risk our paths crossing someday So you walk that way, I'll walk this way And, and there's, there's kids, kids playing, playing guns in the street And one's pointing his tree branch at me And so I put my hands up I say enough is enough If you walk away, I'll walk away shot me dead. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Frederick Clarkson, a senior research analyst at Political Research Associates and an analyst of the religious right for over 30 years, the co-founder of the important group blog about the Christian right, Talk to Action. His books include Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. And he has a series of essays on the new apostolic reformation, the cutting edge of the Christian right, at the online magazine Religion Dispatches. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frederick Clarkson. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us. And you first came across Mike Johnson, the new speaker, quite a while ago. So, Tell us about how you found him, and of course, uh, he came from obscurity to become this new Speaker of the House. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was writing an article about the about the uh, the national political infrastructure of the Family Research Council in an article in 2018. It was an article about their organizing manual, and they have some 35 state political and policy affiliates located in state capitals. And beyond that, they organize uh, what they call community impact teams, which are basically uh, social issues uh, committees within churches, but in this case informed by the Focus on the Family Network. And so uh, the head of the Family Research Council was uh, uh, trying to uh, get a bunch of new community impact teams started in churches in Louisiana. And he had a big event with a lot of pastors, had a big luncheon. And he had then Senator uh, David Vitter uh, speaking, and, uh, uh, and uh, a person who was just an attorney. He didn't hold public office named uh, Mike Johnson. And I thought, well, that was very peculiar. I'd never heard of this guy. And why does, some, why does an obscure attorney get to stand on the same podium with Tony Perkins and, uh, and David Vitter. So that, that, that's how I, I spotted him. I thought, well, there's got to be a reason. I didn't know then <laughs> that uh, he would rise to uh, such importance, but uh, clearly he had been talent scouted. And that was in 2015, right? Yeah, that's, uh, the event was in uh, 2015. Uh, he was running for uh, uh, the state legislature for the first time. Right. But then he became a congressman in 2016, along with Trump. Being the president. That's right. He, was, he wasn't there long before he took, uh, took the next leap. Uh, so he could get the, re- the Republican nomination in that district. It's a very red district, and you're almost assured the nomination. So clearly his relationship with uh, Tony Perkins and his relationship with a bunch of uh, conservative clergy you know, provide the launching pad for his political career. So he had a very sort of friendly discussion with Hannity on Fox, where he basically said, you know, his worldview comes from the Bible, and pick up the Bible off your shelf and read it. That's what I believe. And so I make no apologies. So is he a theocrat? Yes. 
Elsewhere, he's used the term uh, biblical worldview, which is a, a common term in these circles. And uh, yeah, it basically means uh, looking at the world through the lens of the Bible and only the Bible. Now, of course, that's subject to a lot of interpretation, but nevertheless, uh, that's the worldview he claims to hold, which is very significant, because if you look at the, uh, at the governmental policies in the Old Testament that flow from the Ten Commandments, that becomes the basis of how you view what contemporary society should look like. And so you might not literally say, well, this was the law in Old Testament Israel, but you might, uh, uh, the operative term, you're likely to hear are biblical principles. So contemporary laws might be based uh, on uh, biblical principles derived from a biblical worldview. So this is a, this is a, a Christian supremacist view taking the idea that their view of the Bible and, and only their view of the Bible is the correct way to approach uh, democracy and public policy within it. So the other thing that he mentioned in the interview with Hannity was that he was asked about the shooting in Maine, of course, which is in the headlines. Of course, now the, sure. the uh, shooter is dead. But he, he went on to say that, you know, you can't blame guns for these horrible incidents because in his view, a person could use a car to mow people down. So he doesn't think it makes any sense to regulate guns. At the end, Quoting him, at the end of the day, the problem is the human heart. It's not guns. It's not weapons. Now, as far as I know, Frederick, there is not an epidemic of people being mowed down by cars in this country. Have you noticed that? Uh, well, nothing on the scale of guns. If somebody gets mowed down, it's one or two at a time, not, uh, not, not, not 15 or 20. Yeah, but it doesn't happen very often, does it? No, it doesn't. Occasionally you find people crashing into crowds, but it, it's rare. And, uh, right. So what the hell is he talking I, about? I, I don't think that that's the point, anyway. It's not, it's not whether one or another is an epidemic. It's the, it's, it's the nature of the causality, right? He has said elsewhere that the reason for mass shootings are the moral failings of society. You know, well, he uh, lists no-fault divorce or teaching evolution in the public schools as things that are uh, they're falling away from a, a biblical worldview uh, in, in society. And this is why these kinds of bad things happen. So along with being a climate change denier, an election denier, anti-abortion zealot, and an anti-LGBTQ zealot, uh, he also believes that the Democrats want an open border in order to get votes from undocumented people, uh, which is absurd. I mean, they don't give you a citizenship certificate when you cross the border, for God's sake. It, the long process takes years. And the so-called anchor babies, you know, it takes at least 18 years before they're eligible to vote. So what's he talking about? Is he Is he just one of these hard-right guys that have all these fantasies? I mean, the, the whole idea of this being a Judeo-Christian nation blessed by God is a complete fantasy. But he keeps talking about this stuff. They all do. So they, and they, you study this stuff. I, I get the impression these people just live in a hermetically sealed fantasy world where they kind of, feed on their own piety and uh, in denial about the real nature of the world. And look at poor Mike Pence. You know, he's in that bubble. He just quit uh, yesterday. Yeah, he shouldn't have gotten in in the first place. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you hit on an important point, I think, Ian, because 
the idea that uh, that people want to come here, you know, is only partly true, right? That is, people are fleeing de- desperate situations, c- climate change. They're, they're climate change refugees from Central America. Sometimes people are, uh, are facing political persecution where they are, and some people are seeking opportunities. But, you know, most people don't want to flee their homes. They'd really rather not. And so the idea that somehow people are coming here for... Uh, uh, anything other than desperate reasons, you know, is, is pretty silly. Uh, but uh, but his hardline response is not really in keeping with a biblical worldview because the, the Bible is pretty clear about welcoming refugees and welcoming the stranger. There's nothing about uh, putting up uh, hard barriers against desperate people. Right, but this good Christian wants to cut radically Social Security. Medicare and Medicaid, which is important for the poor. And, of course, the prophet Jesus ministered to the poor. And the Bible says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So can anybody pull these people? His argument would be, and he's not alone in this from a conservative point of view, uh, and that is that they... Uh, it's not for lack of compassion, although it might be, but uh, but rather that they don't view uh, government, that that's the appropriate function of government from a biblical perspective. And they would expect uh, families and churches and communities to uh, handle these kinds of things. And you could argue that, well, that's never happened very well, you know, before there was Social Security. Uh, but nevertheless, that would be their point of view. Well, again, that's a fantasy, isn't it? Uh, well, I think so. I think there's an appropriate role for government in uh, in uh, having social insurance programs and making sure that everybody's uh, covered, uh, their health care is, is covered well. And I don't see why that's such a big issue. I understand it, but I just don't see it. <laughs> but nevertheless, we were getting at it a second ago, and that is that when we speak of a biblical worldview, from their point of view, you would, you would think that it's something that's uh, you know, full of coherence and standards and consistency. But that's not necessarily the case, right? As you say, there's all kinds of uh, politics involved and uh, coalition building and taking hard lines in places maybe there shouldn't be hard lines. I mean, remember, first and foremost, he's a politician. <laughs> and uh, you have to keep that in mind no matter what he says about the Bible. Well, he certainly is a politician, because when Tom Emmer got the nomination, he worked behind the scenes, Mac Johnson, to spread the word amongst his fellow evangelicals in the Congress how much Mike Johnson was culpable for gay marriage, or for not voting against it. And that was a deal-breaker for 26 of them. So they torpedoed Tom Emmer, with the help of Donald Trump, who also boosted Mike Johnson. So he played a role in getting himself elected. He did. I mean, Emmer also isn't an election denier, as I recall. So mm-hmm. uh, he, they can uh, they, they can gay bait around marriage, but there were a lot of issues involved there. And I think what's significant is not that Johnson uh, you know, opposed Emmer, it's that he was an organizer of the opposition. Exactly. So he met briefly with Biden. So what happened there, do you think? He's meeting with a guy that he doesn't think is a legitimate president and that he thinks his hero, Donald Trump, should be president. So is that for real? Does he really believe that? Do we know for sure that he believes that nonsense? 
Well, as is the case with lots of politicians, you don't always know what they believe. But he wouldn't have accepted the speakership, let alone run for it, as he did several times. Uh, if you didn't want the office and you didn't want to make it function, you know, uh, he he's sought and was given a leadership role. And part of that leadership role is dealing with the president. So, you know, we'll see what, what, how his religious views inform his politics and what his relationship with the president turns out to be. But but I think it's a, a necessary and pragmatic step, you know, regardless of what his views are. I mean, uh, you know, past speakers met with the president, and why wouldn't he? But is there any way that you can ever educate these people about, for example, so let's start with history. They really believe this is a Judeo-Christian nation anointed by God. I mean, when in fact the Founding Fathers came out of an environment of religious wars in Europe, and they, that's the last thing they wanted. Tom Paine was an atheist, and he was the intellectual champion, I guess, of the Constitution, or at least the revolution itself that led to the Constitution. They just make stuff up. The church and state separation was incredibly important to the Founding Fathers, and all these people do is tear down that wall, and they've been very successful, and then now they've got a majority in the Supreme Court that are going to tear the wall down even further. Well, that's right. It's, uh, uh, Johnson has uh, been very close to and influenced by a, a pseudo-historian named David Barton, and uh, who's an important Christian right uh, uh, figure, who is really one of the main architects of this idea of uh, America was founded as a Christian nation and, and needs to be restored as one. Uh, so he's been uh, uh, deeply immersed in, in, uh, in David Barton's thought for a long time. It's something that he has said, and David Barton is thrilled and has uh, said he's already on the phone, you know, helping uh, uh, Johnson, you know, uh, figure out to, which staff to populate his office with. So that's an important relationship. But I mean, I've read what Johnson had to say about church-state separation, and he does a, a David Barton thing, and that is he, he stops with the uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's famous letter to the Danbury Baptists, where the phrase wall of separation between church and state comes from, as if that was the first time the phrase had appeared, or, you know, that uh, there wasn't a deep history behind, of, of thought behind that. And in fact, without going into all that history, it wasn't just Jefferson writing a letter. He had it vetted by his attorney general, uh, uh, Levy, uh, because he wanted it to be considered as an authoritative statement of his view of, uh, uh, of the, the meaning of the First Amendment and, uh, and the religion clauses. So the answer is yes and no. <laughs> I think Johnson has a closed mind. It doesn't mean there aren't easily available facts uh, to, to challenge him with. But how much does this guy, like all of these evangelicals, want to impose their worldview and their piety on everybody else? In other words, we're all heathens and fallen, and their job is to bring us back to Christ. Uh, I think Johnson is more than any other senior politician in my lifetime, has, has his religious views as the center of his identity, and that his religious views drive his politics and his approach to government and policy. 
and that uh, some politicians, you know, happen to be, you know, Episcopalian or they happen to be Catholic, and their religious their religious identity is somewhat peripheral to who who they are as uh, as government officials. It's the other way we're around with Johnson, and that shouldn't be underestimated whatsoever. And uh, he doesn't just want to convert the rest of us. He also wants to control us. He wants to see a policy uh, implemented that reflects his biblical worldview, regardless of the religious and, uh, and political views of the rest of us. It, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's authoritarian, and, uh, and he's dead serious about it, in my view. Right. An authoritarian with a smiling face. So I thank you for joining us, Frederick Clarkson. Thanks for having me in. And again, I've been speaking with Frederick Clarkson, who's a senior research analyst at Political Research Associates and an analyst of the religious right for over 30 years, the co-founder of the important group blog about the Christian right, Talk to Action. His books include Dispatches from the Religious Left, The Future of Faith and Politics in America, and Eternal Hostility, The Struggle Between Theocracy and Democracy. And he has a series of essays on the New Apostolic Reformation, The Cutting Edge of the Christian Right, at the online, online magazine, Religion Dispatches. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.